Now available from CorbettReport.com. The Data DVD Volume 4. Every podcast, interview, episode and article published on CorbettReport.com in 2011. All on two Data DVDs. For details or to buy other Corbett Report DVDs, please go to CorbettReport.com slash shop. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to The Corbett Report, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this fifth day of February 2015. Welcome to episode 301 of The Corbett Report, How to Fake an Alien Invasion. Now, you better be careful who's watching over your shoulder today, because we are about to broach one of the most top-secret, ultra-classified pieces of information in the entire conspiracy pantheon, a subject so sensitive that its mere exposure threatens to topple the power pyramid itself, and as a result, is never talked about in the establishment mouthpiece media. I'm referring, of course, to the topic of... Aliens. Plus, what was in the skies over Jerusalem? And why did it stop over one of the most treasured sites in Christianity? We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. What's hovering over Salt Lake City? Is it a rocket, a blimp, a UFO? Former government UFO expert is warning that Britain is wide open to alien visitors and that the consequences of not monitoring extraterrestrials could be huge. Nick Pope, who resigned from the Ministry of Defence UFO Project, says the department looking into UFOs has all but closed down and despite a high number of credible sightings. Let's uh, speak to Nick Pope. He joins us uh, both in the studio. We want to meet this guy. Joining us now, our team leader, James Fox, one of the nation's top UFO experts, and Aaron Ryder, who is in charge of tech and recon for the series. Good morning to both morning. of you. Good morning. Is it a ufologist? Is that what the actual... So they say. Okay. <laughs> EWA 517, do you want to report a UFO? Over. Negative. We don't want to report. Aries 31, do you wish to report a UFO? Over. Neither, we want to report one of those either. Uh, Aries 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind? Over. I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, sir. Uh, Aries 31, uh, me neither. I'll try to track traffic to destination. Over. While the family knows their story sounds out of this world, they are convinced they witnessed a close encounter and will be keeping a watchful eye on the sky. I think we're definitely believers now. Uh, uh, sorry, my mistake, my mistake. No, this is clearly a subject that is propounded time and again ad nauseum in the establishment mouthpiece media. That same media that we know is lying to us about most major world events, either through direct lying or a lying by omission. So why are they not omitting this little idea from the cultural context? Why are they 
constantly returning to the idea of alien presence, alien cover-up, alien invasion, alien threat. Why is this propounded so often, not just in the news media, but of course also in those cultural entertainment productions that I hope we understand are a, a, the end product of the culture creation industry that has been predictively programming us, again, for decades, generations perhaps, to accept various memes and ideas, including, of course, this idea of alien invasion, alien threat, and the fallout and consequences thereof, which again is a theme that has been returned to time and time and time and time and time again for the better part of a century by this point. It's almost as if the billionaire power players at the top of this pyramid are actually connected to an idea to implant this idea of alien invasion in the public consciousness for the purpose of manipulating public opinion. And that's because they are connected to such an agenda, demonstrably so. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m. a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Never before had a radio broadcast provoked such outrage or such chaos. Upwards of a million people convinced, if only briefly, that the United States was being laid waste by alien invaders. And a nation left to wonder how they possibly could have been so gullible. By quarter past eight Eastern time, telephones were ringing madly all across the country as concerned Americans tried to determine the whereabouts of relatives, warn friends and acquaintances, and most of all, corroborate what they were hearing. A what? Wait a minute. For the next several hours, newspapers, Radio stations police. and police precincts from coast to coast ma'am, we don't know anything would be about swamped it. with calls. Well, I can't help that, ma'am. We just don't know anything about it. Well, did I say something about a quiet Sunday evening? What's going on? Soon, strange bulletins began coming in over the press service wires. In Bergenfield, New Jersey, just north of Grover's Mill, some 20 families turned up at a police station with all of their household possessions piled into their cars. In Indianapolis, a woman rushed to the pulpit in a Methodist church, shouting that the end of the world had come. And in Washington state, a spectacularly ill-timed power failure plunged the small town of concrete into darkness and sent terrified residents fleeing into the mountains. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns Pitted against the single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. Here's a special bullet in New York. Well, my wife, she came in 
my wife just wringing her hands and, and wailing away, her eyeballs about to pop out onto her lap, going, what is it, what is it, what could it be? Is it the Germans? Well, she hadn't heard the word Martians, but I had. There's a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. Now, here's another bulletin. From we think that we're really smart, but... If there's a cue out there that could possibly be dangerous, we're going to react to it protectively, autonomically, instinctively. Fear first, and reason and facts second. Now, I'm sure that the majority of the listening and viewing audience will be familiar with the story of Orson Welles' infamous 1938 radio dramatization of the famous H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, and the resulting hysteria and panic that ensued, driving people insane, believing them there to be a real alien invasion taking place, and farmers running out into the fields, shooting at grain silos and the like. And that story is a fascinating one for a number of reasons, namely because it is a confluence of different events in world history at that time that had a very interesting and profound effect on shaping an entire field of study. And of course, this relates to the advent of mass communication technologies like the radio, which was still... In, to some extent in its infancy as a broadcast medium at that time capable of reaching across a nation as wide and diverse as America and reaching however many millions of people at the same time and inducing this kind of mass panic and psychosis and it is interesting to uh, to study in that regard and so it is not surprising that it was immediately made the subject of such a study funded by who else? The Rockefellers. And we can take more on this from a very, very important article that was published on globalresearch.ca back in 2012, Early Psychological Warfare Research and the Rockefeller Foundation, by Professor James Tracy. Reading from that article, quote, The founding fathers of mass communication research could not have established their field without Rockefeller largesse. Alongside World War I propagandist and University of Chicago political scientist Harold Laswell, psychologist Hadley Cantrell was a principal contributor to the knowledge and information that helped propel Rockefeller-controlled enterprises and American empire in the post-war era. Throughout this period, Cantrell provided the Rockefeller Combine with important information and new techniques in public opinion measurement and management in Europe, Latin America, and the United States. A roommate of Nelson Rockefeller's at Dartmouth College in the late 1920s, Cantrell took a doctorate in psychology at Harvard, co-authoring The Psychology of Radio with his doctoral mentor, Gordon Allport, in 1935. Radio is an altogether novel medium of communication, Cantrell and Allport observed, preeminent as a means of social control and epochal in its influence upon the me mental horizons of men. The work garnered the attention of Rockefeller Foundation Humanities Division Officer John Marshall, commissioned by the Foundation with convincing commercial broadcasters to include more educational programming into their advertiser-driven schedules. To this end, Rockefeller was funding fellowships at the CBS and Broadcasting Networks. Aware of the Dartmouth connection, Marshall encouraged the enterprising Cantrell to apply to the Foundation for support. Cantrell's request resulted in a $67,000 grant for a two-year charter of the Princeton Radio Project at Princeton University. There, Cantrell proceeded to develop studies assessing radio's effects on audiences. In 1938, Cantrell also became a founding editor of the Rockefeller Foundation-funded Public Opinion Quarterly, an organ closely associated with U.S. government's psychological warfare endeavors following World War II. 
When the Princeton venture commenced, another trained psychologist close to Rockefeller, CBS Director of Research Frank Stanton, was named PRP lead researcher, but took a secondary role of associate director due to his position at his broadcast network. At this time, Austrian émigré social scientist Paul Lazarsfeld was recruited to join Cantrell. Thus, Cantrell, Stanton, and Lazarsfeld were closely affiliated and ideally positioned to embark on a major study involving public opinion and persuasion. The opportunity for such an analysis presented itself when CBS broadcast Orson Welles' rendering of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds on October 30, 1938. Lazarsfeld saw the event as especially noteworthy and immediately asked Stanton for CBS funds to investigate reaction to what at the time was the largest immediate act of mass persuasion in human history. Over the next several months, interviews with War of the Worlds listeners was collected, provided to Stanton at CBS, and subsequently analyzed in Cantrell's 1940 study, The Invasion from Mars, a study in the psychology of panic. End quote. A fascinating little tidbit from history, I trust that you'll agree, and if you do, I hope you'll go and follow the link in the show notes to that original article so you can continue reading about Hadley Cantrell's adventures providing studies and information about psychological persuasion to the Rockefeller Foundation, and how that developed and contributed towards psychological warfare techniques for the U.S. Army and things of that nature. But, again, I think it is interesting to see this confluence of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds becoming a radio dramatization, which incites this mass panic, the largest immediate act of mass persuasion in human history that is then studied by the Princeton Radio Project, backed up by the Rockefeller Foundation. But you could argue that that's a tangential connection or a uh, or just a coincidental uh, connection, that this doesn't mean that the Rockefellers are interested in mass uh, persuasion in terms of alien invasion per se, it's just that that was the immediate causal, uh, proximate cause of this particular study. So you might fruitfully ask, are there any other connections between Rockefellers and this idea of faking an alien invasion or an alien presence of some sort? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is such evidence. Mr. Rockefeller uh, backed many UFO-related projects in the period between the late 80s and 2000. But for the purpose of this hearing, we will concentrate on his political initiatives in these areas. Lawrence Rockefeller's first forays into ufology started sometime in the late 80s through Dr. Cecil B. Scott Jones, a parapsychologist and former U.S. Navy commander who had worked as naval attaché in Asia and at the Naval Scientific and Technical Intelligence Center. Between 1985 and 1991, Jones was special assistant to Senator Claiborne Pell, the powerful Rhode Island Democrat chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who was deeply interested in parapsychology and who probably many of you met personally. Senator Pell was also friends with Lawrence Rockefeller and both served on the board of the Human Potential Foundation, a small think tank launched in 1989 in Vienna, Virginia by Jones to conduct, quote, research into all conditions of humankind, physiological, psychological, and spiritual. Many of the papers released by the White House OSTP come from Scott Jones, who knew Dr. John Gibbons, a physicist who worked for many years as director of the Office of Technology Assessment for the U.S. Congress and was appointed in 1993 by the Clinton administration to direct the OSTP. 
What was the exact turning point of Lawrence Rockefeller's evolution from a general interest in consciousness studies into the specific area of UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence is still unclear. But the end of the Cold War and the arrival in Washington of a younger generation represented by Bill and Hillary Clinton are key factors. He felt the time was ripe for a new and fresh approach into an area that had been previously dominated by a Cold War mentality. Rockefeller recruited for these efforts a longtime associate, Henry L. Diamond, an environmental attorney from Washington, D.C., whose links to the family went all the way back to the 1960s when he worked with Lawrence in his conservation activities. Diamond also knew John Gibbons, and so he was the right person to make the first contact with the OSTP chief when he sent a memorandum on March 29, 1993, requesting a, me a meeting. And I'm quoting now the first paragraph. Lawrence S. Rockefeller, who is a leading U.S. conservationist, businessman, and philanthropist, is anxious to have a brief meeting with Dr. Gibbons to discuss the potential availability of government information about unidentified flying objects and extraterrestrial life. As one who has had a long-time interest in environmental and spiritual issues, Mr. Rockefeller, with other leading citizens, is planning to make an approach to President Clinton on this subject. I invite all of the political media, all media in general, but certainly the political media, to look at the Rockefeller Initiative. It is one of the great stories in American history. It's one of the great political stories, certainly of this or any other time. It is filled with amazing people who are still around and still very powerful. At the time that Rockefeller approached through his attorney, President Clinton, Clinton's key, one of his very key advisors was John Podesta. The chief of staff at the time was Leon Panetta. The wife of the president at the time was Hillary Clinton. A good friend of the family at the time, soon to be Clinton's Secretary of Energy, was Bill Richardson. And this event went on, or this initiative went on for six years. The press completely ignored it, as if, what's the news there? It's just a billionaire Rockefeller trying to get the president to release all the files on this phenomena possibly put a, uh, a letter into every newspaper in the country and release, uh, and basically, and, and the truth embargo. There's no news there. Now, for those of you not immersed in the topic of the disclosure movement, you may not be familiar with some of these names and faces, but uh, some of the main ones to take note of are, of course, Dr. Stephen Bassett, who, who founded and runs something called the Paradigm Research Group at paradigmresearchgroup.org. He defines himself as a political activist, lobbyist, commentator, the executive director of Paradigm Research Group and the Extraterrestrial Phenomena Politicalist Action Committee, and executive producer of the X Conference, the Citizen Hearing on Disclosure, and the Congressional Hearing Initiative. And Dr. Stephen Greer, who runs something called the Disclosure Project, and he des describes himself as the father of the disclosure movement and uh, the person who presided over the groundbreaking National Press Club Disclosure event in May of 2001. So these are some of the biggest names, if not the biggest names, in this disclosure movement. And, well, they don't really make a secret of the fact that the Rockefellers are, or uh, specifically Lawrence Rockefeller, was a big 
help in getting this movement launched back in the mid-1990s. And again, we can document this. And in order to do so, let's turn to a very important website, which I will commend to your attention. And I hope that you guys out there have, well, I know some of you have already found it and have emailed me about it. I have found it myself. And it seems that the, myself and the author of this website are in accord on a number of our uh, political uh, views, especially the uh, the overall way in which the, uh, the BRICS in China and Russia and other aspects of the New World Order system are being used as the good cop and a good cop, bad cop system. But also on this subject of the UFO disclosure movement in a very important article called Why Are the Rockefellers and the Jesuits Guiding the UFO Disclosure Movement at RedefiningGod.com. I will put the link in the show notes so you can go and follow it. But just reading from that article, quote, The Rockefeller role in getting the disclosure ball rolling is something of an open secret among the disclosure people, the disclosuristas, as I call them. On Stephen Bassett's own Paradigm Research Group website, a specific Rockefeller effort referred to as the Rockefeller Initiative is openly touted. The same effort is also touted on Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project website as Project Starlight. This letter from the Project Starlight Coalition was the result of the historic Asilomar, California meeting that Dr. Greer organized and Lawrence Rockefeller paid for in June of 1995, just before Clinton's meeting with Rockefeller in August 1995. So, who is Lawrence Rockefeller? Well, according to Lawrence Rockefeller's biography, in 1937 he inherited his grandfather's seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He served as founding trustee of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund for 42 years from its inception in 1940 to 1982. During this time, he also served as president, 1958 to 1968, and later its chairman, 1968 to 1980, for 22 years, longer than any other leader in the fund's history. He was also a founding trustee of the Rockefeller Family Fund from 1967 to 1977. So not only was Lawrence deeply involved in the financial industry, but he was also among the founders of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Rockefeller Family Fund. These funds are notorious for advancing globalist aims under the pretense of philanthropy. Lawrence also served on the Rockefeller Brothers Fund's Special Studies Project. End quote. Now, I'll let you continue reading about that special studies project and the interesting fact that even now, four decades after the publication of the final report, the Prospect for America, the Rockefeller Panel Reports, certain sections of that paper, of that report, are still classified, which is interesting in and of itself. But there are also uh, screenshots of some of the, the pages of this report here in this uh, this very important article talking about how they are steering America towards shaping a new world order and things that you would expect to find in a typical Rockefeller study. I suppose the point here is to emphasize that Lawrence Rockefeller, of course, very much in the heart of the Rockefeller matrix, pushing this global government agenda, which David Rockefeller so gleefully admitted to in his memoirs, as I'm sure we all know, or we all should know by now. And I would, again, suggest you go to see this original article, if for no other reason than to click on such things as the Rockefeller Initiative or the Disclosure Project's own Project Starlight page, where you can browse through and see all of the main characters who are connected um, through this initiative that ran from 1993 to 1996, including, of course, President Clinton and Lawrence Rockefeller, along with Hillary and uh, Dr. John Gibbons and uh, John Podesta and uh, Vice President Al Gore and all this other uh, cast of uh, Congress critters and very unsavory characters, including, of course, Dr. Stephen Greer. 
the aforementioned uh, father of the disclosure movement. And uh, again, all of these letters are archived here online, so you can go and read through them all and the, the, the various correspondence between some of the players, including Lawrence Rockefeller and uh, John Gibbons and Lawrence Rockefeller and, uh, and the Clintons. I mean, this is a, a pretty in interesting and openly admitted non-secret that the Disclosure Movement was really launched with the aid of Lawrence Rockefeller and the Clinton administration. So I think that should at least get our antennas up towards the possibility that this is going to be used towards the furtherance of some sort of staged or faked alien invasion. Now that, again, sounds like an outlandish prospect to those um, those poor souls coming in from mainstream media land who are just landing on this site random randomly. Uh, I hope that you will be able to at least appreciate that there might be a reason why the very rich and powerful and well-connected would be interested in doing something as ridiculous and outlandish, I agree with you there, as staging some sort of alien threat, alien presence, whatever it may be. But there, as I say, there are reasons why this might be done, and these aren't reasons that we have to speculate on. We can find all of the usual suspects talking about these reasons in all of the usual places, and of course, the big ones, global religion, global finance, and global government, uniting the world around this perceived alien threat. What is exceptional, what is exceptional is that the Vatican was taking very seriously what science might tell us about the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligent life forms. That's what the conference was about. I can't tell you that the Vatican found any alien life. I don't think that's what they were looking for, but they well, were we taking have, very seriously well, I, the issue. We probably won't be seeing aliens at mass anytime soon, but the Vatican's chief astronomer does say that there could exist other forms of life outside Earth. And he says if they do exist, they are God's creatures. H how does this actually work? When Discovery decided they were going to do a show on alien invasions, your phone rings because you're on the sort of speed dial for theoretical physicists who can help them do the war game for how this might play out? Well, believe it or not, we physicists have actually studied the question of what happens if we do encounter a hostile advanced civilization in space. And Hollywood gets it all wrong. Hollywood assumes that the aliens are maybe a hundred years more advanced than us, and if only we had a secret weapon, we can defeat the aliens. Wrong. Either the aliens don't bother with us because we're simply too primitive, or if they do invade, it'll be more like Bambi versus Godzilla. Now, the United Nations is getting ready for a contact with aliens from outer space. This is Maslin Offman. She's out of Malaysia. She will be planet Earth's first interstellar diplomat. First, I'll have to categorically deny that I was appointed or will be appointed the ambassador uh, for aliens, um, the ambassador for United Nations uh, for aliens. Um, no, the committee is not discussing this very, uh, this subject matter. But yes, I was in the UK to attend a meeting, which I can quote to you, uh, called Towards a Scientific and Societal Agenda on Extraterrestrial Life, which is why this whole thing came about, because um, the British press um, caught hold of the fact that I was going to be at this meeting. And I was on a panel that was discussing um, they call it the Great Panel Debate. I like that name. Uh, it says extraterrestrial life um, and arising political issues for the UN agenda. 
it's very hard to get inflation in a depressed economy. But if you had a program of government spending plus an expansionary policy by the Fed, you could get that. So if you think about using all of these things together, you could accomplish you know, a great deal. I mean, if, if, we, if we discovered that uh, you know, space aliens were planning to attack and we needed a, a massive buildup to counter the, the space alien threat um, and really inflation and budget deficits took secondary uh, place to that, um, this slump would be over in 18 months. And then if we discovered, whoops, we made a mistake. There aren't actually any space So we need aliens. Orson Welles be better, is what you're saying. No, that's a, that's a, there was a Twilight Zone episode like this in which uh, scientists fake a, uh, an alien threat in order to achieve world peace. Well, this time we don't need it. We need it in order to get some fiscal stimulus. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. But as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight, we're going to live on, we're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. If you saw that there were aliens there, would you tell us? Yeah. You would. <laughs> I think, look, what do we know? We know now we live in an ever-expanding universe. We know that there are billions of stars and planets literally out there, and the universe is getting bigger. We know from our fancy telescopes that just in the last two years, more than 20 planets have been identified outside our solar system that seem to be far enough away from their suns and dense enough that they might be able to support some form of life. So... It makes it increasingly less likely that we're alone. Oh, you're trying to give me a hint that there are aliens. <laughs> no, I'm trying to tell you I don't know. Oh. But if we were visited someday, I wouldn't be surprised. I just hope that uh, it's not like Independence Day. Yeah, right. Maybe that it's, a, you know, a, a conflict. Well, now we have friendly Maybe the aliens. only way to unite this incredibly divided world of ours. They're out there. We better... Think of how all the differences among people on Earth would seem small if we felt threatened by a space invader. That's the whole theory of independence. You're right. You're Everybody right. Everybody gets together and makes nice and, you know. You and Bill O'Reilly would be hiding in a bunker together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Bill O'Reilly, he'd be every mean thing he ever said about me. I don't care. Look at that. What an interesting milieu of characters we have floating around there. We have the Vatican and the UN and Nobel Prize winning economist slash Keynesian wingnut Paul Krugman and multiple presidents of the United States and all of these people all talking about the same thing. Wouldn't it be great if we had this idea of an alien threat that would unite us all behind fill-in-the-blank world government or world financial system or or baptizing the aliens. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And it's interesting to look at this. I mean, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. I understand and can smell a the public preparation for some sort of staged event when I see one. And, well, if it looks and smells and quacks like a false flag operation, 
it probably is one. And again, being supported by some of the most prominent and powerful and well-connected political and financial elites, uh, clearly there is something very, very stinky here. And in order to really understand this stink, again, we know why this would potentially be a a valuable thing for these power elites to consolidate their power in a world government or what have you. But the question is, could they do it? And if so, how could they do it? These are important questions that we need to address if we want to really approach this subject. And I guess if we're going to address it, we have two different routes we can take. We can go down the unverifiable, unsourceable, unfalsifiable, undocumented route, or we could go down the sourced, verified, falsifiable, documented route. And me being me, I'm going to go down the sourced, falsifiable, documented route. Um, But if you want to go down that unsourced, unknowable, unverifiable route, you can go, for example, with something called Project Bluebeam. Now, this is something that I'm sure most of the listeners out there have heard of at some point, at least in a vague sense as some sort of plan that was uncovered. There must be documents backing this up, talking about staging an alien invasion with holograms in order to create a world government, something along those lines. Well, if you really want to open up the Pandora's box of Project Bluebeam, it's it's much more specific than that and, um, well, somewhat more outlandish and much less documented than you might expect. This really all dates back and sources back to one particular French-Canadian journalist, Serge Manost, who was talking in the mid-1990s about this Project Bluebeam, this NASA project that he had uncovered and was unveiling to the public that had a multiple-stage process for creating a world religion, world government, world tyranny. And this involved the induction of earthquakes in order to expose archaeological finds, manipulated planted archaeological finds that would change our view of human history, and staged extraterrestrial invasion, and the appearance of a new messiah to be the head of this world religion, and the imposition of UN world government, etc. So, This is a uh, detailed plan that was talked about, but again, there is literally no documents behind this. There's no NASA secret paper that was ever exposed about this. It really all sources back to this Serge Manast and a couple of interviews that are available online. There's, uh, There's a transcript of a speech. There's a translation of what I guess is some sort of summary of a book that apparently he wrote on this subject. He did write a book, apparently, in French on this subject, but it's never been reprinted, and it's basically unobtainable. So there's a couple of different translations of something that may have sourced from this book, more or less. But that's basically it. I mean, there's just these few scraps, and from those scraps... There's been a lot of talk, and a lot of people have run with this idea, but I think not a lot of people know where it actually sources from, so I will put some links in the show notes so you can actually follow them and read about them and come to your own conclusion. Is this worth following, and uh, why should we believe this particular piece of information? Call me a doubting Thomas. I just, I'll believe it when I see something, anything documentable, verifiable, um, in terms of this plan. Um, now, if we want to go down the other route and look at actual verifiable sourced and, and knowable technologies that we know exist, let alone those technologies that we don't know exist that are being worked on in the skunk works of DARPA down in the bowels of the Pentagon. And for more on DARPA, I'll direct you to a previous Corbett Report radio episode where we talked about DARPA and its various projects. But uh, for some of the technology that we do know about, we can source that in a number of different ways from a a number of different seemingly disparate threads, but definitely technologies that we now know exist. One place to start, 
we can get the clue from uh, the uh, the book by previous Corbett Report guest James Perloff, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, where he talks about a uh, Air Force military publication that is was available on the Air Force website. You can still access it through there on the Wayback Machine. And again, the link will be in the show notes. And this is about an airborne holographic projector, which this, uh, again, this af.mil website notes is a three-dimensional visual image in a desired location removed from the display generator. The projector can be used for psychological operations and strategic perception management. It is also useful for optical deception and cloaking, providing a momentary distraction when engaging an unsophisticated adversary. And uh, you can see the unsophisticated visualization that is accompanying this in uh, on the website itself. Uh, but yes, very crudely, it's a plane projecting an image of another plane elsewhere in the sky. Now, that, of course, is a very crude implementation of this type of holographic technology that, at the very least, would be required for making the world believe we were under some sort of alien invasion threat or what have you. But that, again, is... 20 years old now and sources from uh, um, an Air Force military website, I'm thinking that the actual technology would be somewhat more advanced. But again, we don't have to speculate about that. We can take a look at the very real developments in technology, including such incredible things as beaming sound directly into people's ears, touchable holograms, and being able to manipulate people's perceptions and incite fear and panic through brainwave technology. The ultimate weapon in the info war would be so secret, so invisible, so undetectable, you would never know your mind was under attack. At Laurentian University in Ontario, Canada, a young student is about to undergo one of the strangest experiences of her life. They're hooking Denise's brain up to an electroencephalograph or EEG machine. For 30 to 40 minutes, this will monitor her brain waves. While these electric coils attached on either side of her head will immerse her brain in an electromagnetic field. Her brain actually completes the circuit between the two coils. The field pulsing through her brain is less powerful than one given off by a digital clock radio. But acutely controlled and focused at specific parts of the brain, it will open Denise's mind to outside suggestion by this man. Can do a switch to see um, its right left hemisphere? Dr. Michael Persinger is a professor of psychology and neuroscience. He is designing ways to put the power of mind control to good use. Dr. Persinger's research focuses on brain trauma. And he uses carefully controlled doses of electromagnetic radiation to induce relaxation and alleviate pain. So uh, what Sandra did was to initiate a opiate releasing pattern that's a burst firing field that um, is stimulated once every four seconds. And that produces relaxation and a very pleasant sensation. Uh, similarly, using the appropriate field, we can induce fear and apprehension, but clearly that would be unethical in that setting. Dr. Persinger's tests suggest that carefully programmed electromagnetic frequencies can tap into individual brains and influence people's emotions. The cognitive processes of the human brain are really quite simple. And if you understand how they work, you can make entire populations think and decide 
or the manner in which you wish. Many experts are skeptical of such an Orwellian scenario, but Persinger thinks the implications are chillingly real. Suppose you generate a field that produces fear, fundamental fear, in large numbers of people. And then, over the television, more traditional ways, you say, the reason we're having this fear is because of this particular group. And now you start to move the population believing in a direction that you wish. To influence 250 million people, the equivalent of the entire population of the United States, may not be that difficult. According to Dr. Persinger, we already have the technology, satellites and television, and radio transmitters. Mind control may already be happening. We know the mysterious PSYOPs plane can beam persuasive sounds and pictures into people's television sets. Will it someday beam disturbing frequencies directly into the mind? First, your voice is transformed into high-frequency ultrasound. Sound so high, no one can hear it. Ultrasound is highly directional, so, like a torch, it can be pointed at someone standing a long way away. Although they cannot hear the ultrasound, it causes secondary vibrations in the air around them, and it's that sound the person hears. So if you imagine you're in a room and I shine a flashlight at you, it's very bright for you, but it's very dark for everybody else. Much the same way, the audio spotlight creates a very narrow beam of sound. You can shine at a listener. They hear it very clearly, and it doesn't create noise that might bother other people in the same space. Researchers at Tokyo University have come up with a technology that is a first and significant step away from the mouse and keyboard, touchable holograms. Up until now, holography has been for the eyes only, and if you try to touch it, your hand would go right through. But now we have a technology that also adds the sensation of touch to holograms. Now look, I'm not necessarily saying that there's going to be a staged alien invasion tomorrow and that we should all be concentrating on this, nor am I saying that there is no such thing as alien life in the universe. I would be shocked, flabbergasted if there was not. And whether or not it's visiting Earth, well, what do I know? How do I know? I mean, I haven't seen it myself, but does that mean it doesn't exist? Well, of course not. Again, I'll let you guys, your grown-up boys and girls out there, I'm sure, I'm sure you can decide for yourself on things like that. But we should know that there is a coordinated plan or an agenda in place to capitalize on such things as fake alien invasions that is being funded and promoted by the financial uh, power elite at the top of the pyramid and is being promoted and pushed out into the cultural sphere by the politicians and economists and the Vatican and the UN and and then underneath them the culture creators and the entertainment industry to prepare the public for such a possibility and we should be on guard against such manipulations and again these technologies that are now coming together Again, the ones that we know about, let alone the ones that are secretly in development that we don't have access to, are clearly along the path towards making such an event possible. And again, you can look at something like the Norway Spiral and believe the official response that this was a Russian ICBM test went awry. And if you believe that, I have a bridge on the moon to sell you. Um, but uh, again, all of these are just different pieces of the puzzle. And I think they add up towards something very interesting, and something that is potentially coming sometime in the future. But even if this particular instantiation, this faked alien invasion or what have you, doesn't come together, still the 
concept of psychological manipulation through manipulated events and manipulated reality is an important one and obviously one that we have to continue to keep in mind. And now that the technology for making these events possible is more and more a documentable reality, I think, again, we should be, we should have our mental guards up for such eventualities. So... That's, I think, where we're going to leave things today. Once again, this is an open source investigation, and I invite and encourage and applaud the input of all of you out there. So if you are a Corbett Report member, please do leave your comments on the website with any relevant links or information, any uh, comments, questions, complaints, criticisms, concerns, or otherwise, all invited as usual there at CorbettReport.com. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast and inviting you to join me again next week.